It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Julian Smith once said, going into the unknown is how you expand what is known. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary, as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me tonight and sitting in Jonathan's seat is Julie. I'm happy to be here. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Julie, what is our topic for today's episode? Can I get what I want through seduction? And our theme text is Proverbs 14.1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Ouch. Can't I get what I want through seduction? Julie, I just want to thank you for sitting in for Jonathan this week. He and Jewel are in the midst of a major home relocation, and he was not able to make it today. Happy to be here. So, can I get what I want through seduction? Coming up in today's podcast, folks, this is an important, important subject, even though, frankly, I don't want to talk about it. But coming up in today's podcast, we've all been seduced at some point by someone or something. So how did that work out for you? We're going to talk about what standing up for yourself in these situations looks like in about 15 minutes. Learning the art of seduction gets a lot of positive attention these days, but what does that really mean? Should I want to know how to be seductive? We're going to give you a perspective on this in about 30 minutes. And when you strip away all the layers of what makes seduction work and what it accomplishes, what are you left with? We're going to look at that in about 45 minutes, and I'll tell you, it's not pretty. So first, let's lay some groundwork. The Bible is full of inspirational accounts of such female heroes of faith as Abigail, Mary, and Esther. It also gives us the cautionary tales of the infamous, like Jezebel and Delilah. But there is a class of special women in the Bible, both virtuous and sinful, whose stories are told without mentioning their names. Often they are associated with well-known men who are named, yet they themselves remain anonymous. Who were these women, and what do their experiences mean to us? Today's focus will be on one of those infamous yet unnamed women, the wife of Potiphar. Her role in scripture is primarily defined as the seductress who pursued Joseph when he was a slave in her household. While there was nothing honorable in her actions, that I want to underline nothing honorable in her actions, there are significant lessons that we can learn from them. Hey Rick, this topic seems a little mature for our younger listeners. Yeah, it is. And so for parents, please be aware that we will be talking about physical seduction throughout much of this episode. So just take that into consideration as we get started. Julia, to start, what does the word seduce actually mean in today's world from the Merriam-Webster online dictionary? To persuade to disobedience or disloyalty and to lead astray, usually by persuasion or false promises. Okay, leading astray, persuade to disobedience or disloyalty. So it is not a good thing by, by, by dictionary definition, and it's very different. People say, well, you know, salespeople are seductive. Not necessarily. When a salesperson uses appropriate uh, uh, approaches to try to help somebody to, to make a good decision, that has nothing to do with seduction. If they lie, then it does. So let's understand seduction in every case, according to the dictionary and our discussion, is evil. It's not good. We're going to find the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. Although we're never told her name, she played an instrumental role in his life. Joseph, for context, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. His mother was the beautiful Rachel. He was favored by his father, and his brothers were jealous of that favor. They plotted to kill him, but finally decided instead to make money by selling him to a group of passing Midianite traders. The Midianites, in turn, sold him to Potiphar, Pharaoh's captain of the bodyguard, and this is where we are beginning to drop in to the story. So we have our first lesson from Joseph. And this is something we're to be watching out for during this story. Living a life of sacred honor usually reveals itself when circumstances are challenging and life looks as though it's not where we expect it to be. So Joseph didn't give up, and instead he pursues godliness in spite of difficult circumstances. And we've got a two-part series on the life of Joseph in episodes 773 and 780, 
called Who Was That Hero in the Multicolored Coat? Those are definitely worth checking out. Yeah, and he really, really was a hero, as we will see in this part of his life. So, Julie, let's go to the story. Let's go to Genesis chapter 39, and let's start with verses 2 through 5. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about that time, from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So Potiphar was blessed because Joseph was there. The blossoming success of this household was a direct result of two things. First, it came from God's favor with Joseph and Joseph's resulting diligence and integrity. And from the standpoint of Joseph, that diligence and integrity are really, really powerful pieces of understanding this whole seduction thing, as we will see. Second, though, the success came because Potiphar acted on his observation that Joseph was reliable and blessed. He saw something in this Hebrew, very young man, and said, there's something of great value, and he was blessed as a result of that. So the Bible specifically describes Joseph as a handsome man. And that's kind of a strange detail, just dropped in, but we're soon going to learn why. So, well, let's get to the story. Uh, we're now in Genesis 39, verse 7. And it came about after these events that his master's wife had her eyes on Joseph and said, sleep with me. <laughs> and that's where the handsome part comes into play. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it, 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 it's a very, very obvious thing here. There's a, a very straightforward attraction. Mrs. Potiphar had it as good as could be. She had plenty of food. She had a big house with servants and a husband who provided her with societal stability and with wealth. But she's lusting after someone who does not belong to her. And from our standpoint, when we look at Scripture, this is an absolute form of coveting. We have to be on guard when things are good. This is an important lesson for us. Sometimes having everything makes us more vulnerable to the suggestions of the adversary because we're comfortable. Do we insult God by demanding more than what he has provided for us? That's one of the very basic subtle lessons that we're putting out to begin this account. So, Julie, let's stop here for a minute and just talk a little bit about Potiphar's wife. Okay. So I, I read a Wikipedia article on this, and there are ancient rabbis wrote um, writings to explain and interpret the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Midrash. And in a specific Midrash that we know in English as the book of Jasher, and I just want to make a note that is not canonized scripture, but it is ancient, the story expands that Potiphar's wife is being mocked by her rich friends in the court, that she is infatuated by this Hebrew slave boy. So she invites them all to their home, and they're sitting around, and she gives them each oranges and a knife to slice them. She calls Joseph into the room. And all of the ladies accidentally cut themselves, drawing blood because they're so distracted by his good looks. So now they understand what she's talking about, and they stop mocking her. Okay, now let me let's, let me just restate what you said. That's not in scripture. That's right. So we don't know that to be true necessarily. Could have well, you, you get the idea, but you get the idea, and I think that's why bringing it up is important. Um, it's clearly not in Scripture. It helps us to humanize what's happening. It helps us to get to the point that's really important, that's hard to admit, that we can be attracted to things we shouldn't be attracted to. We need to all understand that because that's what seduction has to do with here. So we've got this. She makes this proposition, sleep with me. I mean, there, there, there's no subtlety in that. That's pretty blunt. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty straightforward. What's Joseph's clear and principled response? We can see that in Genesis 39, verses 8 and 9. Okay, I love this. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, with me here, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put me in charge of all that he owns. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? So Joseph, for a young man, 
articulates his position with incredible grace and wisdom. He refused her advances, both physically and verbally. It wasn't like, no, he told her why. And he had this powerful, godly reasoning. So four quick points on this godly reasoning. First, Potiphar trusted him implicitly. And everything in that household was under Joseph's authority. He was important there. He was. Third, Potiphar's wife was still above Joseph, beyond his authority. And the last point is that acting on her advances would be a sin against Potiphar, but more importantly, a sin against God. And here I appreciate him because he had every opportunity, but he valued his relationship with God over temporary physical satisfaction. This would be beyond breaking the trust of his boss. Joseph saw compromise as a sin against God. This, Rick, wasn't the kind of temptation where you could get closer and closer to the line and peer over it thinking you can't fall in. There are certain sins, like what's being proposed to Joseph here, where you might think, "Ah, if nobody finds out, no one gets hurt. But of course, that's ridiculous. and, And we will see that as we unfold this whole story. So Joseph is showing us the it, right at the very beginning how to stand, how to stand for what's right, how to be unequivocal in where we stand. He not only drew a line in the sand that he proclaimed he would not cross, he lived that proclamation every day. So so let, let's go to Genesis 39, uh, 10, because this is the, 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 the next piece. After he gives this explanation, what happens? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. And I just want to make a note. He didn't even want to be in the same room with her. He was doing all he could to keep this from going the wrong way. So he lived what he originally said. That's hard to do because people can get worn down, and he's obviously not doing that. He lived that proclamation each and every day. In spite of daily being exposed to her seductive words, he stood in the integrity of his godly choice. And, and, and folks, look, this is an important place for us to begin. Where am I standing? Look down, figuratively, look at your feet. What are your feet standing on? Joseph knew, and he knew that the ground he was on was solid, and therefore he could withstand whatever was to come his way. And it would become very difficult. Right. And so I was looking at a website called thediligentwoman.com and just wanted to pick out a few lines from there. Um, In our modern times, feminism is everywhere. As sexual immorality becomes more acceptable, women are pushing women to be overtly sexual. Women's sexuality is on display more than ever. Now, Potiphar's wife is a woman from ancient Egypt, but she had no problem expressing her wants and doing everything in her power to meet them. And remember, she's the master's wife. He's the slave. There is this relationship that where she does have the power. So as we go through this podcast, through this discussion, we want to know about standing against seduction. So our first point there, standing against seduction. Joseph saw this seductive compromise as a direct sin against God. Opportunities continued to present themselves, but his moral boundaries were already securely in place. His relationship with God was worth more than any temporary satisfaction, no matter what the cost. That is a stand that is unequivocal. That is a stand that we can all look up to. Joseph is a slave, and his master's wife is pushing him to violate everything honorable. This can't end well. Resisting seduction is difficult all by itself. What do we do when the seduction escalates to another level? One of the basic principles of living a godly life is understanding that no matter how firmly we plant our feet in righteousness, the evil that pursues us never gives up. Our resolve, therefore, must be the kind of resolve that is renewable. Otherwise, we're destined to be worn down or caught off guard. Just remember, you can have resolve and say, whew, got out of that one. But that's not the end of it. Because inevitably, sin comes back. It doesn't give up. Darkness is tenacious. We need to stand against it. And Joseph is an incredible example of how to do that. Let's go back to the story. One day while Joseph was working alone in Potiphar's house, 
uh, Potiphar's wife came to him again. This is Genesis 39, next verses, verses 11 and 12. Now it happened one day that when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the people of the household were there inside. So she grabbed him by his garment, saying, Sleep with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And Rick, this is no different from a boss asking a subordinate to stay after work once everyone leaves. And don't you find it odd that in such a big household, suddenly no servants are anywhere to be found? Yeah, well, odd or planned, and and, and really, uh, yeah. you know, and that's really what you're what you're driving at. It's no different than a boss act, a, asking a subordinate to stay late, because why? Because you get them by themselves, right? And look what he did. He didn't even like go to a different part of the house or just protest. He went outside. He left yes. the house. Yeah, it says he fled and went outside. It's like I'm out of here. So Joseph's resolve was immovable, though his legs worked really well, okay? (laughs) Not a moment was lost in hesitation as he left without the garment that she tenaciously held onto. This response speaks volumes. Consider what may, may, what may have gone through Joseph's mind. What emotions might have he been wrestling with as a human being, as a man? What might have been in his mind? All right, well, let's put ourselves in Joseph's place for a minute. He's in his 20s, he's young, he's vibrant. Was he flattered? And even maybe physically attracted to this exotic woman? And did the excitement and the mystery of this seduction play on his ego? And think about it, he's a slave. Could this secret relationship benefit his life in the long run? So in addition to special favors, maybe she could even someday help him gain his freedom. And I think the point for us today is she held the power. She had more power than he did. And today we would call this sexual harassment. And there's no difference from a boss, an employee, or a teacher, and a student where there's a decision to make. And if you don't comply, you could lose your job, not get promoted, or fail a course. The hashtag MeToo movement, remember from a couple of years ago, that brought a lot of this to light. Um, We did an episode on that, episode 1032 called, Is the Bible Behind the Times on Me Too? And it's the biblical perspective of the treatment of women. It was really eye-opening, so I recommend that one. So, you know, we talked about what may have been in his mind as a man. Now, those things may not have been in Joseph's mind. We don't know, but we know that that's the way the human mind can work, and that's why we're bringing them up. The bottom line is none of this mattered because Joseph's ego and potential emotions were no match for his resolve. They were no match for his resolve. So you got to ask yourself the question. I have to ask myself the question, does my resolve overwhelm my ego and my emotions? Does it? Ask yourself. Because seduction is seductive. Seduction is subtle. Seduction can get you and can tempt you, and you take those little steps, and you end up going down the wrong road. Again, what about our focus and resolve? How clear are we when we are faced with seductive circumstances? Julie, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And we daily face this normalized sexual immorality where sex outside of marriage is really, it's just another recreational activity. It's just fun. And it's despicable. But it looks like it's marketed as fun. The me- right. The media convinces us this is common. The media convinces us this is without consequence and is to be encouraged and even celebrated. There are no purity boundaries. So folks, as a Christian, you'd better set those purity boundaries and you better watch what you're standing on to make sure the foundation is strong. Let's get back to Potiphar's wife. She's now been dramatically rejected by a slave. And that's going to cause even a bigger challenge for a woman like this because I don't think anyone ever tells her no. Yeah, that's something I would have never thought of. And, and so, so okay, what happens now that she has been so dramatically challenged? Let's go to uh, Genesis 39, 13 to 18. Let's just do 13 through 15 to start with. When she saw 
that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to make, for us to make fun of us. He came in to sleep with me and I screamed. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left this garment beside me and fled and went outside. Boy, did she change reality in an instant. <laughs> That's true. She, there was a reality of the factual event and she took it and completely turned it on its head. So she takes that, that's her initial reaction, and then what happens? Verses 16 through 18. Mm, so she left his garment beside her until his master came home. And then she spoke to him with these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make fun of me. But when I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. So when Potiphar comes home, she tells him that story. She put the story out to the servants. She repeats the story back to Potiphar. What does he do? Well, he becomes angry, and he orders Joseph to be put in jail. Now, we've been talking about and, and lauding Joseph's honorability and integrity and godliness. Joseph's honorable choices, what did they yield to him at this point? They brought him false accusations, they brought him slander, and they brought him prison. Mm. You look at that and say, wow, is it worth it? Lies, However, lies, lies. Right, right. And, and, and consequences, deep consequences. But let's remember, these are only the immediate results. The story is not over until it's over. And we know that this was an important step in Joseph's life, which was a life of salvation and redemption. Joseph just didn't see that at this time. And let's go back to a few lines from thediligentwoman.com. This woman then turns her sexual desire into vengeance. And with the same deliberate intent, she took his garment, lied to others about him. She made herself the victim and he the aggressor. She had no care for Joseph's future. She only wanted to punish. So she drove the final nail. She went to her husband. She said it was her husband's fault for bringing Joseph into their home and then lied again about the situation. She didn't use her power for good. She used it for her own ends. Potiphar's wife, used her sexuality and her femininity to manipulate the men around her. The warning to us, do not be like Potiphar's wife. Don't tempt the men in your life to sin. And for those of us who are married, don't use sexuality as a weapon against your husband. And my comments would be, yeah, Mrs. Potiphar was evil, but she also serves as a common lesson to us women today. We might be called the weaker sex, but we still have powers of manipulation that can easily be used to entice others to sin. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you're speaking from the perspective of a woman, and, and I really appreciate that because I don't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but also from the perspective of a man, just don't look at this and say, well, it's all the woman's fault. We can easily be seductive in our own ways, and the principles that we're talking about here, we can completely abuse and undermine as well. So let's make sure we understand seduction on any level, in any circumstance between human beings is wrong. Don't, don't even begin to go down the road of, well, what about, what about, well, maybe. No, no, no. There are no maybes. Listen to Joseph. He knows what he's doing here. Right. And you can substitute manipulation when it's not a sexual situation. Right. Right. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let, let's do a comparison. You know, we've looked okay. at this, this story, and so let's compare Joseph and Potiphar's wife, just their, their motivations and their responses. All right. Well, Potiphar's wife wanted to satisfy her lust through an adulterous relationship. Joseph wanted to live a life of integrity that would satisfy God. Look at the satisfaction difference. Potiphar's wife relentlessly pursued her sinful desire and continually seduced Joseph. Joseph relentlessly stood for godliness as best as he could, and as best as he could, he steered clear of the seduction. So when look at the relentlessness and see what it's applied to. Potiphar's wife was so desperate in her desire that she tried to force Joseph to be with her. Joseph, on the other hand, used the force of his godly character to run, even if it meant leaving something behind. So there's force on both sides of the issue. The question is, what are you using that force for? Potiphar's wife was enraged at Joseph's rejection of her continued seduction. Joseph wasn't enraged. Joseph was engaged in being a respectable, 
and godly man, no matter what the cost. The enraging reactions of Potiphar's wife were met with the engaging responses of Joseph's godliness. And our last comparison. Potiphar's wife disrespected Joseph and falsely accused him as perpetrator of attempted rape. Ouch. Joseph respected Potter's, Potiphar's wife. Now, she disrespected him. Joseph respected Potiphar's wife and did not discredit her, even though he was falsely accused. So there's disrespect and there's respect. There's enrage and there's engage. There's, there's the force uh, used for good or for evil. There's the relentlessness used for good or for evil. There is the satisfaction used for good or for evil. We have to see the differences here and decide which side of this thing we want to stand on. Someone might ask the question, why wouldn't Joseph stick up for himself? Why isn't he defending himself? And I think there's probably two reasons. First of all, he's a slave, and who's going to believe him? It's not, it doesn't even matter what he has to say. He's nothing. Um, but also, um, he didn't, you know, being a married woman at that time was so important to the society and her ability to survive and thrive that it's it's perhaps that he didn't want to interfere with the marriage that was there so joseph might have been put to death for this accusation that was the punishment for something like this but instead potiphar has him jailed so that tells us something perhaps potiphar was aware that his wife was not as we would say the model of morality uh, or it might be that potiphar thought so highly of joseph that he couldn't bring himself to order his death and I thought it was interesting that this is the last time in the Bible that we even hear of Mrs. Potiphar, but Joseph's life is well-documented. And because of this incredibly unfair incident, Joseph was eventually introduced to Pharaoh. And when Joseph was able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams to mean a great famine was coming, Pharaoh not only frees him, but he makes Joseph second in command in Egypt. What a turn of events. And he was, so he was second in command in Potiphar's house and, and, and thrives and makes the household thrive. And when then he's second in command in all of the land of Egypt and he saves the land as well. And you're right. It's an incredible turn of events. God's hand was in Joseph's life. So even when things looked bad, they were in God's providence. So for us, standing against seduction, the account of Potiphar's wife and her attempted seduction of Joseph is an account of opposites. Potiphar's wife represents all that is sinful and inappropriate while Joseph represents godliness. The big question is, first, to what degree would I go down the road of seducing another to get what I want? Well, would I do that? And second, on the other side, second, how strongly would I stand, stand with such temptation before me? Would I be the person who would be seduced, or am I going to be strong enough the way Joseph was in godly principles and foundation to be able to resist? Stand against seduction. Joseph really did practice what he preached, even though he was jailed for it. Am I willing to do the same? This is deadly serious on both sides of the issue. How do we realistically understand the warning signs? Up to this point, we primarily, primarily focused on warding off the seductive advances of another. What we need to look into now in, is the many moving parts of seductive behavior so we can be forewarned as to our personal vulnerability to it. What we talk about now <laughs> I, I, may be hard to hear. It is hard to hear. It, it's it's going to be hard to talk about, but it needs to be done. So, Julie, as we start this segment, we're going to get into some deep weeds here. First, though, let's begin this examination with the basic and powerful principle of choice. And let's remember, our actions are the result of our choices. Let me just say that again. Let's remember, our actions are the result of our choices. And if you didn't hear me, our <laughs> actions are the result of our choices. We need to know and understand this. Here's the problem. Choosing a rationalized approach, that's part of the seduction equation, inevitably yields, yields a rationalized response. Let's look at Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. 
notice the progress or the, the, the lack of progress. You're walking and then you're slowing down and you're standing and now you're mm-hmm. in the seat of scarf. So now you're sitting. You've stopped moving forward. You've stopped moving away. When facing sin, this is a deadly way to deal with it. Yeah, we should be running, running away, not right. standing and, you know, not moving. Right. So we, we get lulled into a lack of movement. That's what happens here. Here's the alternative to that problem, that problem of walk, stand, sit. The alternative, face in the way Joseph did by always focusing on godly integrity. Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. I can imagine that's exactly what Joseph did. And understand, Joseph is there before the law, the Ten Commandments are written, okay? Or no, not after, no, he's, he's yeah, 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 before the Ten Commandments. He's, he's of the chosen people of God, but they don't have the law yet, but godly principles are part of him, delighting in the laws of the Lord. What's the result? The result of this is standing firmly planted, and we've been talking about this, in the favor of God and yielding fruit that feeds others. Psalm chapter 1, verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Rick, it's interesting because Joseph was planted but yet he literally ran away from the problem. So it kind of seems like a contradiction. But see, the only way he could run is because he was planted. Because he was so firm and so strong and so well-nourished in godliness, that's what made him be able to run. And that's the way our lives need to look. So we've talked about the account of Joseph and and Mrs. Potiphar. We're now going to look at an Do I really want to do this? No, but we're going to do this because it's important. We're going to look at 11 deceptive tactics of seduction. Okay. (laughs) This was your your idea. I just want to... Well, I I did think so. Okay, so aside from being guarded when these things appear before us, we need to ask ourselves, as we're going to go through these next segments, do I engage in any of these behaviors ever? All right, so I engage in any of these 11 deceptive tactics of seduction, and I want to add the question, how do I repel them if they are coming to me? So do I engage in them, and mm-hmm. how do I repel them? The context of all of this comes from Proverbs chapter 7, verses 6 through 23, and these verses are where these 11 tactics are actually drawn from. So here's how the verses start. This is the classic setup for failure Proverbs chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. Young man, go ahead. No, go ahead. The young man kind of is wandering down, and you can see... And, 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 and the, the, the proverb is saying, I, I see this young man lacking sense. So he yep. doesn't have a foundation. And this is important because this is why we teach our children young and often about what's important and why. These 11 deceptive tactics of, of seduction come from a blog by a gentleman by the name of P- Peter Kroll from May of 2014. So we're going to continually go back to uh, pieces of what he says, because very, very, very perceptive on his part. Uh, and it's from knowableword.com. It'll be in the, in the rewind material. So just to get started, part of the blog. When we commit sexual sin, we are not victims, but perpetrators. Therefore, the solution is to keep the Father's words in our hearts so that we might see sexual temptation with new eyes. Then the glamour doesn't seem so glamorous anymore. So we're going to look at these 11 deceptive tactics tactics of seduction, look at the Proverbs scripture that come from it, and talk about a, a solution as well. We'll be going back to this uh, blog frequently each with each one of these as we go through it. To get started, though, let's lay out. There are going to be, we're going to talk about four sad truths of seduction. The first one, as an introduction, sensuality misplaced can subtly become seduction. And I want to tell you that sensuality is built into humanity and in its right place in its in, in in its right circumstance it is a good thing in a in a marriage situation there should be sensuality but the moment that extends outside of appropriateness 
it can easily become seduction. How does this happen? These are the 11 steps. First is initiative, taking an initiative. Proverbs chapter 7, the beginning of verse 10 and verse 15, describe that. This is about the woman. Remember, the young man goes to her corner. In verse 10, and behold, a woman comes to meet him. In verse 15, therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. You can see there's this great initiative, this reaching out. Oh, look who's here. You take initiative. What does the blog say about that? We love to feel loved. We want to feel wanted. We desire desirability. Immorality flatters us. It tells us we're something special. It comes out to meet us. And, you know, it can be so subtle. So subtle. And so, like you said, so flattering. So what do we have to do with something like that that is subtle and that is flattering? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6.18. And we read this already, but it's good to hear it again. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And I just want to make a quick comment here. We know that there is going to be a percentage of our listeners who are embroiled in this type of situation right now. So we pray that there's something that's said that we can help you get out of it, no matter if you are the seductor or the one being seduced. Yeah, and and flee immorality. No matter which side you're on, when you realize it, do what Joseph did. You run away. doesn't matter what you leave behind. Leave the situation. So initiative is the first deceptive tactic. The second one is dress, how you dress. Proverbs chapter 7, the beginning of verse 10. It says in, in the New American Standard Version, it says she was dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. So she's dressed to seduce. That's the point. Let's go back to the blog. Women know it, men know it. If you dress a certain way, you will cause people to think of you in a certain way. But just because they think it doesn't make it true. And we get so hung up on, well, I want to be able to express myself and I want to dress the way I want and all of that stuff. Fine. But just understand that when we dress, however we dress, and this goes for everybody, we are sending some kind of a message to the people around us. Whether it be a conservative message, whether it be a, a, a message of seduction, whether it be a message of excitement, I don't know, maybe you wear your team's clothes everywhere you go. It's a message of loyalty, team lo- whatever it is, we are sending a message. Do not kid yourself about such things. So dress is important to understand. How do we deal with that? Well, we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and pearls and gold or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Making a claim to godliness. We need, if, if we are following Jesus, we are making a claim to godliness. And if you claim the name of Christianity then you are claiming a name of godliness. Dress the part. That's, it's, it's, it's really simple. Another one of the sad truths of seduction. Acting seductively is positive evidence that we have fallen prey to the seductions of Satan himself. There is no mistake. There is no middle ground. When we act seductively, we are proving we positively are now acting in Satan's manner, in in his likeness. How does that fit? It's not a good thing. We had the initiative as the first of these uh, detective... uh, uh, Detective... (laughs) Well, you don't even want to say seductive. (laughs) Deceptive tactics. We had initiative and dress. Third is commonality. Commonality. Proverbs chapter 7, let's go to verses 11 and 12. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. She's in the middle of all of the activity of the world. Julie, go ahead. I know everybody's doing it. I know it's every man's battle and every woman's battle, but though immorality is loud and proud and you can find it on every street corner in every person's life, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't. Okay. And we can decide 
to not make it that way That's by, right. by the way we act and by the way we respond. It's our choice. How do we handle this commonality and, and, and just the seemingly, well, it's everywhere, so why not just kind of go along with it? First Peter chapter 3, uh, verse, part of verse 3 and then verse 4. Your adornment must not be merely external, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Think about that description, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. What a comparison. Don't go down the road of commonality when we can have this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, precious in God's sight. So we've got the initiative, we've got dress, we've got commonality. Next, the fourth point is touch. Now we're starting to get into some really deep things here. These are the, Those first three are almost kind of like introductory. Touch, Proverbs chapter 7, the first part of verse 13. In the New American Standard Bible, it says, so she seizes him. That doesn't, it's like, what? <laughs> New Living Translation says she threw her arms around him. So you've got this touch, this connection. Julie, back to the blog. The right touch at the right time is like magic. And it doesn't have to be sexual. We'll, we'll talk about that in the next point. It just has to communicate a sense of concern and value. It's subtle. And we have to be aware. We don't want to go down that road. You've got the initiative, the dress, the commonality, and now touch. It's progressive. It is. It is. And as it gets progressive, it's harder and harder to back away from it. You need to understand that this is why seduction is so seductive, because it becomes harder and harder the further you go to back away. How do we handle this? Well, think about touch. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. That's a pretty straightforward example. Don't touch. Simple. There's no, well, can I just put my finger? No, <laughs> don't touch. And, and, and folks, look, this, this gets more and more serious as we go through. The fifth one, I don't want to even say it, but I'm going to say it because it's important. The fifth is foreplay. And you say, Rick, what are you doing? We're being truthful about what we need to watch out for. Proverbs 7, 13, the, the, the second part of verse 13 says, and she kisses him. Now, according to the blog, the Bible teaches that kissing is sexual in Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And of course, it's not the holy kiss, which obviously was equal to a wave or a handshake in Romans. I know you know the difference between that which welcomes and that which arouses. And we have to be honest. And, and, and folks, this is hard sometimes, but you have to be honest with yourself. Am I dabbling with something for the excitement and the arousal of it when I know better, but uh, just a little touch? No, 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 no. And if you didn't hear me, no, because we get stuck. Seduction draws you. And you, it's like being in the current in, 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 a, in a river, and you don't even know the current is there, and then you try swimming the other way, and all of a sudden, I can't get out of this thing. That happened to me once when, when canoeing with a group of people, and we were, we're in, the, in the river and, you know, just jumping out into the water, and, and yeah. I'm in this current, and I'm, start, and I'm trying to swim back to my boat, and I can't get there, and I'm swimming, and I'm swimming harder and harder, and I'm not going anywhere. And I look at the people and say, uh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> I'm drowning here. <laughs> yeah, I can't get back. Oh, it's boy. seductive. I obviously did, but I didn't know until it was too late, until I was Happens stuck. quickly. Yes, it does. It does. So with this foreplay, how do we handle this? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles, and that word entangles means to weave in, to entwine, to involve with, no, 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 a soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Stay focused on the most important thing. That's the lesson here. That's the key. We have to stay focused and be completely, completely opposed to those things which are contrary to godliness. So standing against seduction, as we wrap up this segment, 
the moment we begin to slow down and consider that which is seductive, we openly invite that seduction to show us more. Mm-hmm. Now, Becca is one of our Christian Questions volunteers here, and she was recently studying Potiphar's wife in a Bible study, and she was thinking how almost irrelevant it was to her because she's happily married and she's not tempted by other men. But she came to a deeper conclusion, and she submitted this for us. Think of Potiphar's wife as more than a two-dimensional person with only evil and seduction on her brain. We know Potiphar gave control of his house over to Joseph, meaning he wasn't really connected with what was going on. He likely wasn't spending a lot of quality time with his wife, and she might have felt lonely, lacking attention or support. And that's why women today, by the way, tend to cheat to fill an emotional need. So their relationship reminds us that if you feel out of sync with your spouse, Take time to hit the reset button, prioritize time together, discuss what might be pulling you away from each other. Spending quality time away from the noise of the world and your phones allows you to reconnect, remember why you love that person, find a way to be on the same page again. Prioritizing important relationships, particularly with a spouse, prevents temptation from setting in and allowing those seeds of discontent room to grow. So communicate communicate. Don't get involved in these things. Standing against seduction, the moment we begin to slow down and consider that, oh, I said that already. I'm saying it again because it's so important. (laughs) Here's the point, folks. The point is we need to stand for what's right unequivocally and without compromise. Unfortunately, the art of seduction is a well-crafted process that is designed to overpower and manipulate another. Be warned. Warning signs are one thing. How do we handle the blatant actions of our own seductive behavior? Actions of our own seductive behavior. Even though this topic is so far off of what our Christian behavior should look like, it still needs clear identification so we can clearly set our sights on what needs to be destroyed. Yes, destroyed. While the discovery process can be painful and even embarrassing, the strength we gather for the fight is so well worth it. So now I go ahead. I've got a sad truth of seduction for you. Okay. To seek what I desire through the seduction of another is a vile act of disrespect towards that person and like Joseph taught us, disrespect towards God. A vile act of disrespect. It's not just disrespectful, it is vile. Let's let's call it what it is. So as we go through these these 11 deceptive tactics of seduction, the sixth one is piety or religiousness. I say, well, how does that, what would that have to do? Plenty. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 13, the end of verse 13 and verse 14. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. She's showing I have done the things that you would be so proud of in my, in this case, in my Jewishness. I'm doing the things that God would want me to do. And here Mm -hmm. we are. Look at that. Let's go back to that blog. You think you can trust this girl with your life, but immorality can't be trusted no matter how often she serves in the church nursery. Remember that sexual temptation is not something out there. It's right in here where we might not expect it. And I think that with all the uh, news going on with all the different churches and all the sexual immorality that's going on, that's bringing down large mega churches, the Catholic church, other churches, this is a big issue. It's here. It's with us. It is. And we need to be alert and aware and not allow religiousness, pseudo-religiousness, to be part of that temptation that brings us down a wrong road. And a great example of pseudo-religiousness, Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26, this is Jesus getting after the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. And what you said about so many people who claim Christianity going down this road of immorality, this is a verse that they need to be to take personally, because we cannot mess around with that spirituality, that religiousness that we proclaim to have. The seventh uh, deceptive tactic of seduction is taste. Proverbs 7, the first part of verse 14, I was due to offer peace offerings. Now, we read that before, but What do peace offerings have to do with taste? So the blog continues. 
Of the various Old Testament sacrifices, peace offerings were the only ones that ordinary people, not just the priests, got to eat. So Solomon portrays this woman as having divinely blessed lamb chops and hamburgers hot and ready. She's got dinner waiting. What's the point? Only that immorality will promise to satiate every physical desire. And we have to be careful because there's so many different pieces to the seductiveness that's in play. And it draws you from all different angles. And we have to be careful of this. This, this point, the seventh point, takes the sanctity of spirituality and uses it as a trap. The sanctity of being able to partake of those peace offerings and using it to trap that individual. How do we stand against such things? Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There you go. What are you sowing to? What are you investing your time and effort and attention into? Because what you invest your time and effort and attention into is what you will get your results from. So when if we are going to minimize the spirituality and change it and allow it to become a deceptive piece of our lives, then that's what we're going to get, is deception hurts, and it's not, not nothing, nothing about this is good. The, set, the eighth point, the eighth point is sights, sights. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 16, I have spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. What about that? Immorality looks so good. It's amazing what pounds of makeup and lumens of stage lighting can do to even the most normal person. And, and so you can make yourself to look like something you're not to get a result that shouldn't even be. Do we engage in that on any level at any time? Are we trying to seduce somebody or for, for whatever reason? We have to be careful of these kinds of things. So whether we are the one perpetrating the seduction with sight or being seduced by sight, what do we need to do? We need to look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, Julie, earlier you talked about the power aspect of seduction and talked about how women have the power to manipulate when they choose to do so. Talk about power. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the position of power greater than any other in the universe. So if you want to lock into power, fix your eyes on Jesus. And if you're fixing your eyes on Jesus, other sights become meaningless. Now, Joseph was pre-Christian, but just ask Joseph how to fix your eyes on spirituality. Point number nine, smells. Proverbs 7, 17. See, you, you see how seduction covers every aspect of our mm -hmm. being. Proverbs 7, 17. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. What about that? Oh, the blog goes on to say, immorality smells so good because a little deodorant can go a long way. The right fragrance can even cover the smell of death, especially cinnamon. So fragrances. Fragrances were invented before deodorant was in place. <laughs> they were invented to make us tolerable to one another. But when you use them as a tool of seduction, you're misusing something that had a really, really good, uh, a, a, a really good purpose. And, and the idea is you can cover even the smell of death with the strong enough fragrance. So we have to be careful about this. We can't be drawn towards something that will bring us to death. How do we do that? James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then the lust has conceived. It gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So again, the idea of death is beginning to be a theme. Now there's 11 of these uh, deceptive tactics of seduction. We're on the ninth one. And now the idea of death is starting to come up. And there's no, no accident that it is. We need to be careful that Whatever we see, whatever we taste, whatever uh, we smell does not bring us away from those things that are most important. Julie, what's our next sad truth of seduction? The disrespect that fuels seduction opens the door to great delusions that are fueled by dishonesty. 
seduction brings delusions. And it's all as a result of dishonesty. That's what we're talking about. And if as a Christian, you're on that road, you've got to ask yourself, can I even begin to think that I'm a Christian by doing what I'm doing? Come on, really. Point number 10, adventure. Proverbs 7, 18. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. Immorality promises something special. And in fact, it promises that you are something special. There's an adventure to be had. It's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting and it's deadly. And that excitement, you know, that, that, that momentary excitement, that thrill mm-hmm. ends up in a crushing defeat of life and a destruction in many cases of lives, plural. How do we focus on staying away from such adventure, the enticement of that adventure. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I discipline my body. I make it my slave. My body can become the slave of a seductress. Or seductor. That's right. I must be in control. And that's why the scripture is so important here. The discipline of mind and body to be about the Father's business. That's what we need to, 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 to understand. And the adventure that we have, by God's grace, to be in his service is something that we cannot minimize and will help us to keep our minds focused on the right things. The final point of these 11 deceptive tactics of, tactics of seduction is isolation. Proverbs 7, verses 19 and 20, it says, For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him, and at the full moon, he will come home. Mm. Okay? Seduction's final tactic is the promise of isolation. Nobody will see us. Nobody will know what happens here tonight. And with the promise of isolation comes the promise of invulnerability. Because no one knows about it, we'll get away with it. What an incredible deception. This is the greatest deception, but perhaps the greatest temptation. The greatest temptation, nobody will ever know. I promise nobody will ever know. Don't worry, got it all covered. Nobody will know. Really? Really? Read Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, and then see if you can tell me that. Uh, For the word of God is living and active and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So, is there any hiding? Julie, is there any hiding? Oh, there isn't. And it doesn't, there is not enough darkness. Dark is not dark enough to hide from God. That's right. And that's the end result here, folks. Seduction doesn't bring anything good or valuable or, or precious or memorable. It just brings sorrow and sadness and death and destruction. As a matter of fact, let's look at the sad end result that seduction brings. Let's continue with Proverbs chapter 7. Let's finish this story. Proverbs 7, now verses 21 to 23. Yeah, this is this poor, this poor man who went over to this woman. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her like an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he doesn't even know what it will co- that it will cost him his life. That's when we fall prey to seduction, especially along these lines, it can cost us our lives, our spiritual lives. It can cost us the lives of those around us. It can cost so much that is incalculable that we would... And how many people have you ever seen who have gone through a situation like this and then look back and say, wow, I should have never if I mm-hmm. only knew and, and the, the regret, but you can't undo the regret. And the hard part is the farther away from God we get and in a situation like this, you're getting farther and farther and farther away, the harder it is to come back. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So finally, standing against seduction, there never has been, nor will there ever be a positive personal application of seduction between human beings. If we are prone to such behavior, 
let us recognize, repent, and restart. If we are prone to succumbing to such behavior, let us repent, reevaluate, and recommit. Folks, this is about choice. This is about looking at our lives and saying, I have choices in my life. I have things that I can do, I can say, I can think, places I can go that can get me away from such things that are so tempting and enticing. And one great thing to do is to talk to somebody who you can spiritually trust, who has got your back, who's going to hold you up and walk with you in the right direction, help you to stand up, help you to brush off, help you to be repentant, and help you to get back on your feet and back to serving God. Do not take an instant and entertain any, anything that is seduction. 1 Peter 5.8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. The question is, if you're involved in seduction, either side, could that be you that he is finding? Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, here's an interesting title. Who successfully challenged Jesus? who successfully challenged Jesus. Hmm. Talk to you next week.